I want to welcome our fan base uh, to the Dish with Fish. Uh, I want to thank my fan base. You guys uh, are sending phenomenal, great notes, well wishes. I, for those who were following me on Twitter, you saw that I now have a a mini icon that one of my followers made. I think I need to contact Starkist Tuna though to make sure that I'm not breaking any copyright laws. Um, it's uh, it's very nice that uh, that you folks out there truly appreciate what we're doing. As I mentioned earlier, last week we spoke to uh, the president of the largest electronic warfare uh, international organization out there, the Association of Old, Old Crows. This week, uh, we are honored to have uh, the current CEO of the Global Soft or Global Special Operations Force Foundation, Colonel Retired Stu Braden. Uh, Colonel Braden uh, served in the United States Army for decades. I won't say you how many years he served there. Uh, if he wants to say how many years he served, he's more than welcome to do that. He had some really unique uh, assignments and some that tie to Europe. Uh, for example, he was assigned to Special Operations Command Europe from 2003 to 2006, and then at the NATO Special Ops Headquarters in Belgium from 2011 to 2014. Today, as the CEO of, the, of Global Soft Foundation, uh, Colonel Braden oversees a nonprofit organization that aims to build and grow international network of military, government, commercial, and educational stakeholders in order to advance soft capabilities and partnerships to, to uh, confront global and network threats, much like the ones that's going on at the uh, illegal invasion of Russia into Ukraine. So, Stu, without further ado, I hope I got most of that right. If you would, I'm going to turn it over to you. You can correct me to 100%. On the lower left-hand side of your uh, screen, you'll see a little microphone. Just go ahead and click that, and you'll be live. Hey, thank you, Fish. Appreciate it. Um, I did 32 years. I'm a quitter. I got out after 32 years, but uh, I wanted to keep serving the special ops community, so I helped create the Global Soft Foundation. I've been doing this, start our 10th year in May, and we're a nonprofit but we've got over 200 corporate partners, about 5,600 individual members from 60 countries. And we basically work with host nations and governments, parliaments, Congress, uh, ministers of defense to kind of make sure that they form their special operations correctly and that they, um, they resource them properly and stuff and, and employ them. I was a big part. I would, you know, help in the Ukrainians stand up their special operations joint headquarters in 2015, help them craft the language um, to get it changed and to get their national holiday on the 29th of July every year. So um, right now doing a lot of work in Eastern Europe. Uh, they're changing a lot of the capabilities, a lot of people divesting themselves from the old Russian Soviet equipment, and uh, they are expediting uh, their acquisition of more modern and Western technology. That's, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Yeah, this is this is great stuff. And this leads right into our questions. Um, uh, I will remind everyone that you're listening to the Marie Report, a 50, another 501c3 nonprofit. And uh, our, our mission and, and effort is to share information about the Ukraine war as well as raise funds for non-lethal aid in Ukrainian relief. So uh, as you're sitting there listening to us, if you find any... Uh, Change in your sofa cushions, feel free to send it on to us. Uh, or if you like listening to Stu, I'll, I'll give a plug out for the Global Soft Foundation too. I'm sure he'll be happy to take a little bit of your money. Uh, for our listeners out there, if you're interested in asking Colonel Braden a question, uh, please go ahead and and, uh, and ask to uh, get the mic and raise your hand. And Domin will, uh, if we don't recognize you, we'll go ahead and, and ask, make sure that your, your question's a viable one. Um, I just will warn you that, uh, that Stu's a, a very close hold 
kind of special ops guy. So there are times where he's going to say, can't answer your question. And you just have to understand that that's, uh, that's part of the nature of, of his line of work. Uh, but hopefully he'll be able to, to give us a little peek under the tent. Um, and with that, Stu, I'm, I'm going to go to our first question. And that is, um, there was a recent decision to send heavy tanks into Ukraine. And that, that's been welcomed by most of our listeners and by most of the people in the West. Um, obviously, tanks are more of a conventional asset, not a soft asset. Uh, to help our, understand, our, our listeners understand soft, could you talk about what vehicles soft forces would actually use? And then in a broader sense, what are some of the what are some items that the uh, Ukrainian soft forces might use that would be somewhat surprising to our listeners? I understand some of them are classified, but some of the ones that might be more interesting to our listeners. Yeah. So, if you, you know, if you go back to 2014 and you look at how the Ukrainian special ops were used, um, it was the driving function and force behind getting their parliament to create a joint special operations headquarters. What they did is, I mean, at that time, the Ukrainian armed forces, the conventional forces, they weren't very good. They hadn't put a lot of energy or time or money or resources into them. They were just a bunch of kids. And they were getting wiped out. Um, They took Ukrainian special operations and threw them out into the Donbass, almost like conventional forces. And many of those special forces units were attrited down to about 30%. I mean, they fought like tigers. Um, they were able to stop larger formations, but at the cost was phenomenal. And that's just really not how you use special operations. You don't use it in that manner. Um, they had to, though. They had no other option to do that. And so you fast forward in 2015, they've got their new joint headquarters and the majority of the Europe NATO powers special operations were in the Ukraine consistently for seven years, building them up, making them better, getting them stronger, getting them back up to their full strength and just working with them and building relationships and exchanging. Um, The U S and most of their Western NATO counterparts, I mean, They've been at war for 20 plus years. And so combat, how it works, how do you do things in different environments? A lot of the training and stuff was, you know, instrumental. And as we brought on these new Ukrainian special ops uh, folks, Um, my assessment is, is they're as good as you're ever going to find out there. They are still having high attrition rates. A lot of what they're doing is, is they're operating behind lines. Um, They have multiple partisan battalions that are operating behind lines. They've been building that infrastructure for the better part of a, you know, almost a decade. And so there's a lot of, you know, what I would say, Ukrainians that are patriots that are doing a lot to even behind and captured territory uh, to support the Ukrainians. I don't want to get into detail of how they support, but... I can just tell you that a lot of the targeting is extremely accurate. Um, And it's because, you know, they have the ability to put eyes on a lot of what's out there. Um, The special ops folks are pretty good at using autonomous systems as well, not just the drones you see, but there's other types of sensors and things that they can put out there. And so I think a lot of what you're seeing as far as targeting comes from the special ops. They've got everything from doom buggies to um, commercial vehicles that just blend in with everything else. So they're out there all over the battlefield and they're 
being huge force multipliers. Often you'll you'll read an article, you'll see something where special forces is being thrown into a part of the area, you know, something like Bakhmut or something like this. They don't, you know, they don't show up in mass formations. They show up in smaller teams. They have phenomenal night vision capability. They have great, you know, radio communications capability and they just hunt. And they'll, you know, they'll kill a few folks here and there and they'll just create disruption. They'll have the enemy, you know, awake all the time because they, they'll be too afraid to sleep and stuff. And they'll do just enough disruptive stuff to kind of slow things down to let them stabilize the region and stuff. But you'll see more and more of them here. I think uh, things are pretty, what I would say, um, neutral right now. We're kind of at an operational pause. Everybody's waiting for the next entity to make a move. The Russians are, you know, been contemplating an offensive for probably three months. It keeps getting delayed. So, you know, I don't know where we are with that. Over. <laughs> no, that's an awesome answer. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, Soft guys, all they get all the cool toys that everybody wants to play with. Uh, so I completely agree with you on that. And, um, you know, one of the things that you and I both realize, especially at working at SHQ, is that um, leaders uh, of countries who've never really had good soft before, they either misuse or overuse their special operations forces because th these are very, very capable. But the problem is, is you, you don't, you, you know, there's too many, there's too many nations out there that want to use them as a, as a conventional force. And that's, that's the, as you've said, uh, and you're hundred percent correct. It's the misuse, right? That's, that's the wrong use of special ops. Um, as I said, we both served at uh, uh, NATO special ops headquarters, although uh, I think your time was a little bit more enjoyable than mine since I served as an ex executive officer to a, a three-star um, SEAL admiral. Um, I, I did, oh, wasn't the chief of staff, which would have been a little bit more fun. Um, if you want to, uh, this next question, if you want to talk about Ukraine, you're more than welcome to, but I think yeah, it might be a little easier for you from a broader sense to talk about Europe and NATO in general. And that is, can you share with us um, why is NSHQ so important and not only to NATO, but also to, you know, uh, uh, PFP states or uh, partners for peace states like Ukraine? So, so what does NSHQ do? Uh, that, that helps Ukraine or other NATO nations? So, I mean, really, it's all about interoperability, right? So the whole genesis of the NSHQ came about, um, it was originally called the NSCC, the NATO Soft Coordination Center. And so in 2004, um, we had the Summer Olympics in Athens. It was right after 9-11. Um, Six million Middle Eastern immigrants go flow into Greece every year to pick grapes. The intelligence community worldwide was freaking out. And you got to understand every nation brings their athletes to these events and they bring small security detachments with them. And everybody was, a, you know, they, they envisioned the 1972 Munich all over again. They just didn't want their athletes being, you know, hostage, killed, blown up. They just freaked everybody out. And so um, from a U.S. perspective, it was a political decision that we, you know, we can't cancel the Olympics. It would be a win for the terrorists. So Secretary Rumsfeld was the secretary at the time. Um, he had U.S. soccer. I was the deputy J3 there to start to work the problem. And we 
put in a bunch of safe houses all over the place. We started working the venue. About 10 months prior to the Olympics, I put a liaison officer in the embassy to work our stuff. And we were pretty far along. Like we were completely capable of taking care of U.S. interest. As we got closer and closer, we rented the old Luxembourg embassy in Athens. It's right down there next to the Starbucks. We created a coalition support center. And we just said, hey, any nation that wants to deconflict security, come here. Now, this is above and beyond outside. Um, everybody wanted the U.S. to run it. Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld kept telling the Greeks, you need to go to NATO. You need to get them involved. This is why you're in alliance. Quit calling the Americans. You need more than the Americans, right? <laughs> you, you, you know, we, we are a part of the answer. We're not the answer. And about 30 days out, the Greek government finally sent a letter to the NATO Secretary General that said, hey, help. Um, they assigned that to JFC Naples. JFC Naples then designated an American two-star, happened to be an armor officer, um, to go there and take charge. The only thing he was taking charge was, was all the infrastructure and stuff that we had built. Um, and so nice guy fell in on it, realized he didn't really you know, understand everything about special operations or anything about it. Um, had Van Smiley was a lieutenant colonel, basically was the, the forward guy there, great guy, came out of the 275 Rangers, and he ran it. And it was joint, and it was multinational, and it was basically a big deconfliction center. And the reality was we were very, very lucky that nothing bad happened. Um, and we're not sure why it didn't happen, because it was too easy of a target. At the end of this, we had a bunch of pissed off young junior field grade officers, majors, and stuff, lieutenant colonels that said, you know, why doesn't NATO have a special ops headquarters? We have one for maritime, land, air, all this stuff, right? But NATO didn't have anything for special operations. And the reason was is no nation trusted NATO with their special ops because it's a national entity. And they never felt compelled to be, you know, to put special ops on the, the fourth generation list. But, you know, with Afghanistan going on, it was becoming more and more of a special ops entity and they were needing more and more special ops and everybody was demanding that NATO do something and sending more conventional forces, frankly, wasn't the answer. So a bunch of those folks that were at the Olympics at a barbecue before they left in Athens wrote a one-page paper. Um, we took that paper. I think Mark Rosengard and myself went up there and we, they briefed it to General Jones, who at that time was Sackier. And he loved it. That's that's what he said. We didn't hear anything. Um, six months later, I get a call. I'm now a colonel. They tell me, hey, you got to go brief the plan. And I was like, there is no plan. It's a one-page paper. That's it. They said, great, you have about 72 hours to make a plan. And uh, I didn't really. That sounds very soft-esque, by the way. Yeah, and so I, I didn't, I just did a couple slides. I did a slide that said, here's the mission. I did a wiring diagram of said, here's what it looks like. And I had Sackier, I had JFC Brunson, JFC Naples, JFC Lisbon. And then I had soft headquarters. I put a three-star thing on it. And then at the bottom of that slide, I put the end state. Um, and I had three slides. And I briefed the three four-stars. I briefed Sackier. I believe the, the Brit four-star DCOM and the German four-star chief of staff. So they all liked everything. And then they said, how much? And I said, to do all these functions and to do everything, it's going to be about 300 people. 
and there were like too many people. NATO was going through a reduction in headquarters, and at the same time, they're asking for another headquarters, which is kind of bizarre because NATO can't walk and chew gum at the same times. And they were afraid that, you know, you're asking to downsize here, but increase here. It would just complicate things at the Mac. So um, they asked me, you know, what's the lowest number? And we, what we agreed, what I recommended was to the generals, I said, hey, look, just take out the deploying piece. That reduces the numbers down to about 100, 150 people. That number they could, they could swallow. That was that was politically acceptable. They can make that work. Um, we gave it the name, the Soft Coordination Center. I can't remember how we made it up. Steve Meir and, and General Jones literally just made it up. He goes, can you live with this name? I said, well, that's the name a four-star gave it. The answer is yes, sir. So, I mean, you know, um, but the plan all along was to make it deployable and make it a three-star headquarters. We just had to do it in iterative process and stuff. And so we, we did that for the first three years. It was a soft coordination center. We stood it up uh, there in Mons. Um, and the biggest thing about it was it was never supposed to have anything to do with the schoolhouse or training and education. That was never part of the original design. It was all about ops. None of the nations would provide any any support to anything other than ops. They just didn't have the manpower or the bandwidth to do it. But we immediately took, at that time, we had, in 2007, we had 345 NATO special operations in country. It was mainly Italians, Brits at that time. And Americans had their own OEF thing, all standalone. Um, within nine months, we had 2,600 that were sustained from, I wanna say 16 countries. Um, so it went from nothing to a pretty big operation. Back together. And so the demand signal for a schoolhouse to bring in the interoperability and get everybody on the same lexicon, you know, using the same type of doctrinal terminology mattered. And so we had to create stuff like soft doctrine for NATO. And, you know, that's not sexy work. In fact, it sucks. Um, but really important, right? No one really, no one really understood what we were doing. And so we invested heavily in, um, getting the doctrine right, getting the language right, getting everything right. At the same time, the EU was looking to do this. Um, I just basically gave them all the NATO stuff and asked them to use that. Uh, I think NATO told me I couldn't do that, but I did it anyway. Um, and the reason is there's nothing classified in what we wanted was, is we wanted to get as many countries using the same doctrinal template and the same terminology. So I think when I left, we were up to 44 countries that all accepted that task units, task groups, you know, all that stuff, everything was defined and codified. Um, so you have the EU and NATO pretty much synchronized and stuff. I think we were trying to work that into the UN as well. So we could have a global, special operations piece. But, you know, you ask, when, when we started, there were three nations, France, U.S., and, and um, the U.K., that could actually stand up a component headquarters. But to be frank, if the U.K. and French did it, it would completely decimate them. They could be only one thing happening at that time. They could only do one. America's massive. We'd gone from 25,000 to 75,000 special ops people. So we could, we could handle multiple 
um, component commands. We could do that, but we were the only country. And what we said is our goal was to bring in more nations that could actually do that job. So it wasn't just three constantly rotating, doing the NRF rotations, you know, the rapid reaction force in Afghanistan. We needed more nations to build out their special operations. Well, you fast forward to today, there's what, 16 that could do it now? Like if you'd have told me in 27, 2007 that we could do, I would laugh at you. I was like, no way. Absolutely no way. But what you've seen across the board is many of your nations have quadrupled the size of their special operations and size. So they've got really good land and maritime special operations. We are just now seeing them build out soft aviation and airborne ISR. I call that, a, that's a deferred cost because people looked at the price tag on that and they had to take a knee because there's a lot of zeros on those. And so, um, you're seeing, but that's happening now. I mean, people are spending the money. They're growing their organizations out. And, you know, I mean, irregular warfare, hybrid warfare, what, you know, asymmetric, whatever term you want to use for what I call modern warfare is highly dependent on soft cyber intel. Um, most of your conventional assets are deterrents. A lot of what you see in the Ukraine are burning in wheat fields, you know? It's not, you know, the, the precision weapons and the autonomous systems and the space-based, you know, what I call detection early warning sensors make it almost prohibitive to, to be in anything that's wrapped in iron or metal. And you're seeing greater proliferation of special operations and stuff. They're more mature. They get better schooling and education, better training. Um, and from, from a political standpoint, if you're, you know, an elected official, um, they have a higher probability of success. And so when, you, when you're looking at political risk, they tend to um, defer to the special ops side of the house. So I don't know if that covered everything. That's pretty long-winded, but that's kind of why the NSHQ is what it, you know, why it was built and what it's for and stuff. My big push now is um, the Europeans, we need to do for the Indo-Pacific region what we did for Europe. And that requires Europeans getting off their butts and going to the Indo-Pacific region, just like we did for them, and build them out. Um, almost every country in Europe has about 60% of their economy tied to that region. Um, so if they think they don't have a vested interest there, they just need to look at their GDP and where they're getting their stuff and where they're sending their stuff. And that would definitely change the way they think. Um, and I think, you know, that's the... That's the direction that, that, you know, that Europe is going to be forced. Most of their energy is coming from that part of the world. So they're going to have to have to think that through and they're going to have to be involved. And it's going to be a big change for everybody. Over. That, that is uh, an awesome answer. And for those that are listening, uh, Stu is the guy who stood up in SHQ. And when, when he talks about, you know, that he was briefing four-star generals and, and how important this was, um, if you ever show up on NATO shape, the, the base in Mons, NATO headquarters for the military aspect is still in what I was told is an old hospital building from like World War II. And NSHQ was so important uh, and they needed a place so quickly they actually built a brand new facility. So the newest facility on the base is actually NSHQ, which is a beautifully nice building, and it's wonderful. And it, it's often the uh, the envy of many of the uh, conventional warfare guys over there. And 
And and aside from talking about great buildings, um, I don't know if Stu, uh, Stu, I don't know if you know this, but I was actually a, a PRT commander in Afghanistan, and um, uh, owning my own fob, uh, I often had um, special forces guys roll through, and it wasn't just U.S. special forces. I had Lithuanians and many others. And as you know, Colonel Braden mentions the ability to bring other nations in to the same game plan and the game and, and the, and the playbook, the verbiage, uh, everyone's on the same sheet of music was instrumental at actually getting soft, uh, to be effective, more effective. Uh, and as, as my old boss, the, the commander of NSHQ used to say, uh, you know, Vice Admiral Killer, he's like, we started at deconfliction. We're now working together, and now what we need to do is we need to maximize synergies, and that's that's exactly it's it, it's a it's a it's a wonderful good news story, and I'm glad that we can share it with our folks because it is paying dividends in Ukraine. Um, we might not be able to talk about them directly, and I know we've had that discussion a little bit offline, um, but but it is helping Ukraine, and and they're doing some wonderful things. Um, <clears throat> I sent you a, a, the third question, and I know we prepped for it, but you've already talked a little bit about Global Soft, so I'm going to get a little edgy with you. I'm going to spitball with you. And by the way, if there's anyone else out there that wants to ask a question to Colonel Braden, please raise your hand, and, and uh, Doma will cycle you up. But um, if you look at uh, if you look at the pictures or the aerial photos of what's going on in Ukraine right now, uh, they're very akin to looking at World War One. Uh, battlefields, right? You have trench lines, you have um, munition divots on the earth where there's impressions. Aside from tanks coming in and being able to break those lines from a conventional warfare aspect, in an academic sense, can you talk about what Ukrainian soft or just soft in general would do in a in a modern day trench warfare scenario to kind of free up the battle space and get you get a, a nation out of trench lines? Uh, can you talk fundamentally what, what soft would be able to do in that situation? Yeah. So one of the biggest things that's not reality is everybody thinks that's like, you know, World War One, and the trench lines are all contiguous connect. That's just not reality. It's a non-contiguous environment, right? So they're lumped together in little areas. And those areas have ranges and coverages and they shoot over them and they can't. I mean, you can, you know, if you're stealthful, walk between all those areas, you know, you sneak through there. Um, it gets the Russians night vision sucks. It's not good. I would say it's poor at best. Um, now their airborne guys do have it and they're better fighters at it. And so, you know, I would, I would avoid that, but you know, they're, 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 uh, any, their ATGMs or any tank guided missiles are pretty good. They're just like everybody else's. And so when you start rolling around in armor, you're, you're in trouble. I started out in the Army as 11th Armor Cav guy, a Cav scout on the east-west German border during the Cold War. So I have a little bit of background in the, you know, of how to maneuver warfare. What I would tell you is, is that um, in the special ops world is what they are doing and what I, what I presume they're doing is, is they're going after the ammunition and food. Russia, their, their entire logistics is operations are built off trains and they have a certain amount of trucks if you've seen the russian trucks are crappy there you know they barely can go around the block um but they they are limited and they do what's called the last 40 miles anywhere between 60 and 80 kilometers is what they'll do they'll truck in the final stuff um 
you get the trailheads, the trains that close to the front nowadays with, you know, precision weapons and um, you're, you're, you're vulnerable. Um, you saw it when they brought in HIMARS. You saw it when they brought in the 270, you know, MLRSs. When you see the, the, the now the, the small diameter bombs they're bringing in is double the range. If they brought in ATACMs, it would change everything because they could range to anything in Crimea, anything. And that they would just destroy all of the logistical hubs that the Russians have. So, um, but if you look at the soldiers right now, they don't have a lot of food. They don't have a lot of ammo. Um, they damn sure don't have a lot of leadership and stuff. And so soft would just take advantage of that harassing. I'm, I am confused. I do not understand why we do not see IEDs yet at this point in time. I watched IEDs with the Fedayeen bring a, bring the U.S. Army to its knees. And I thought I would have seen more of those. I'm, I'm, you see a lot of minefields now, anti-armor minefields, a lot of surface laid stuff where they just throw it down there and they just cause people to, to, to move in different directions. Um, uh, you see a lot of the shipping and stuff. A lot of the port facilities have been attacked. I think you'll see more of that. Most of the ships are tied up in Sevastopol. Um, you know, the Ukrainian SEALs, they sunk the hell out of them in 2014. I mean, they just, they filled the harbors full of sunken ships to ensure that the Russians couldn't kick it out. So I think you'll see more of those types of attacks. But it's got to be in concert with something. It can't just be disparate things where people are just pinpricks out there. It's got to be a part of a bigger move. Um, and I think you'll see that. But I, you know, when you start, because when you start pushing those people forward, you can do it several ways. Um, aviation's risk, if you get a more than a hundred feet off the ground right now with active IR from S 300 S 400, you're done. It'll, you have like an almost a 99% probability of death. And so this is why you don't see much flying out there and stuff. Um, um, but having said that, you know, I think as they start to reduce, um, the radars that are forward or, I think it's going to limit the coverage of those S-300s and S-400s, and it's going to allow certain types of aviation platforms to get a little bit closer to the forward edge of the battlefield. Um, as a tanker guy, you know, I mean, look, most armor doesn't work. You know, I will guarantee you that most of the Russian tanks are running with lots of deficiencies on uh, that they have they're just not they're they're hard to maintain they are really 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 hard to maintain um and so i got no confidence that the russian systems um are going to be sustainable over time they just don't have the logistics to do that i would be they're they're already using t-62 tanks and and the t-62 factory closed in 1973 they're pulling optics and stuff off that putting them on t-72s so they yeah i mean they, they've been degraded significantly when it comes to armor um I just think, uh, you know, I think that you, you've seen artillery be reduced across the board. They've destroyed tons of their logistics. You know, they like to, I mean, the Russians just dump the stuff on the ground, you know, because they have, they have to go offload these trucks from the railhead. So they just plop it on the ground. It's not covered, concealed. There's no revetments. I mean, it's just kind of thrown there in some wooded area easy to spot with drones easy to take out with drones and i think you just they've attrited those down significantly and stuff so um 
you get them, you know, what I would be doing as a specialized person is I would make them cold. I would make them hungry and I'd make them stay awake all night. That's what I think. <laughs> You're, uh, I, uh, I, I really enjoy talking to you because every time you talk, I, I come up with like 18 more questions. Um, but I know I, I said I'd only have three. I'm going to have one real quick one. The, uh, when you saw videos on YouTube and of, um, of Ukrainian forces uh, in what was small team tactics, one, you know, two, three man teams where they're out launching javelins, would those have been special ops guys or would those have been actually conventional forces going to just pushed out into, into different areas? I think it's both. You know, look, you could take an 18. This is this is why I'm not an armor officer. You could take an 18 year old kid and in 45 minutes of instruction, teach him to fire a javelin. That's over 98% accurate. If that doesn't scare the hell out of you, I don't know what should. But that is, you know, and that will take an M1 tank and turn it into a burning hunk of metal because it's a top-down attack system. It will penetrate. It just, it's that good. And so do I think it's special ops? I, I know that they had a lot of their folks forward. They have been a lot of experience firing it. But I think now you'll see the javelins are proliferated across all of the Ukrainian armed forces. Even the one they make, the Stuga, which is Ukrainian made, you know, it's like one-tenth of the cost of a javelin. It's like $20,000. It's phenomenal. It works great. You know, it's even got greater range than a javelin. Um, you know, they've got the Carl Gustavs, which is like a, modern day bazooka that's doing great the in-law's good it's a the only the in-laws a super fast round but 600 meters with a tank is damn close and i don't know if you've ever you know hunted a tank before but 600 meters man it gets a little bit sporty there um you know it's like trying to hunt a lion with a pistol not not smart um but in an urban environment it's phenomenal you can take a shot with that where you can't take shots with um with uh, javelins and stuff. So yeah, as they start to, you know, now they're down in the, they're in these wide open ranges and stuff where the fields, you know, these Ukrainian fields are massive, thousands and thousands of acres or hectares. And so you, you know, you can't run across it because it's, you know, knee deep in mud and, you know, it's not ideal. So you pretty much got to stay on the roads to do this. It's really road warfare. And I, I would say probably in the next 45 days when things start to thaw out a bit, the amount of mud you're going to see is insane. It's going to kind of freak you out. And all this heavy armor just doesn't do well in mud. So go, it, that's just, it's been that way throughout history. Go ask the Germans how it worked and the Russians. It just doesn't work very well. But I, I, I think you'll see special operations. Um, you know, I think they'll start to, to do more incursions. I think they'll get behind lines. I don't know how deep they'll go because I don't know how long they can sustain themselves. You know, there's not a lot of food. You can't live off the land there. I mean, it's like moonscape. The Russians have turned it into, you know, the surface of the moon. So I don't know, you know, how deep you can put them in there without being able to resupply them and stuff. But, but the forward folks, you know, they'll make them want to leave. Yeah, the, and the good news is, is even if uh, if you do have soft behind the, the, the uh, behind enemy lines, which is, is a normal operating area for them, uh, they they probably have uh, plenty of people who are are uh, uh, supportive of their efforts. So you know, getting them food, equipped, places to sleep, and security is uh, is probably a, a wonderful thing. Um, 
Hey, uh, Colonel Braden, I appreciate everything you, you've done. I'd like to turn it over to a couple people to ask questions. As you heard earlier, I, I let them know that uh, there are times when you're going to tell them that you can't answer certain questions. But I'm going to start with uh, with Doman, who is uh, who is my co-host uh, for this show. He's basically been he's been looking at people who, who've been raising their hand and cycling up. So we've got a couple of folks uh, for you. And then with, when you need to to, uh, to draw an end to it, you just let me know and uh, and we'll go from there. So I'll turn it over to Doman. Doman, go ahead. Thank you, Colonel Jeff. Uh, Colonel Braden, thank you so much. This is really insightful. Just absolutely fantastic having you with us. Um, I'm curious, how do you leverage non-SOF elements uh, like artillery, like aviation, in this mass conventional conflict, uh, in this mass conventional war that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, to maximize the effectiveness of SOF units? So how can you help how can you connect with other branches uh, to to just deliver the maximum effect so most of your soft units will if they're operating they're going to have liaisons embedded with the conventional forces right to deconflict you know the, so you don't kill them there's no blue on blue we say um, you got to do that um you also rely on them for support right you know if i need a quick reaction force you know, they're most likely going to provide that stuff. So there is actually really good coordination uh, between them and stuff. And that I actually do know is happening. Uh, and you know, I remember now Ukraine has multiple special ops. They have the DIU, the SBU, they have the regular, you know, so they've got multiple special operations entities inside that government. And they're pretty good at deconflicting from my knowledge that, you know, I don't, I haven't seen the day-to-day -day stuff. I don't watch that or talk to them about it, but they're pretty good about that. Um, targeting is everything, right? So where are we today? We're, everybody's short artillery ammo. And the reason is, is because they have what I call dumb or old artillery ammo. Where it was an area weapon. You just sling it out there in mass, you know, and you would hope to kill, you know, something. Now, that's not the case anymore, right? So with the Excaliburs and the GPS fuses, yeah, I mean, you're sitting there watching an artillery round land and hit a tank. That, you know, the Russians can't do that. They're not doing that. Only the Ukrainians do that because they're using 155 Western modern precision artillery rounds. So what does that do for the Ukrainians? Well, it's less wear and tear on the gun barrels, right? Most of these gun barrels are droop after a while, and they'll be inaccurate. And we say, well, it's, you know, how much? Well, it could be a lot. And so if you're someone shooting around in support of you and they're off by 200 meters and it's landing on you, that's not a good thing. So... You preserve your equipment. You fire less rounds. It's less costly. Um, your, your logistics train is smaller, right? If you're firing dumb ammo, you're just slinging it out there. The the logistics to bring forward all that ammo is is, is huge. Um, but precision has changed the scope of things. The other thing is targeting, right? So you have sensors, you have drones, you have human beings that are out there, and they're able to. Um, lays a range find to the target to make it accurate. So the gunners are much more precise in doing things. Um, aviation, listen, I mean, if you're 100 feet above the deck, you won't be up there very long. I mean, they're just shooting everything down at this moment. Um, even the, the old Barakter 82s, you see videos of those. Let me tell you, they, they shot down a hell of a lot of them once all the air defense assets got in there. Um, you don't see strikes on Kiev anymore because they built up of enough of a of an anti-aircraft belt. You know, what you hear about is they'll launch 100, six will get in, they'll kill like 90 of them, 
You never hear them talk about the 90 that were just decimated that saved thousands of lives. You only hear about the six that got through. Uh, but the Ukrainians are doing a phenomenal job of just, you know, taking them out. And they just get better and better every day. You know, I mean, time is on the Ukrainian side. It's not on the Russian side. I mean, um, I don't know if that answered your question or not. That's perfect. Great, yeah, it's a great answer. And uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Daryl's one of our longtime listeners. So, Daryl, why don't you go ahead and go with your question? Good, good afternoon, Colonel. Uh, this is concerning the beginning of the war. Uh, where you said that they would had gotten down to uh, 30% of their uh, SOF personnel. And my question is, was that, do you think that was just a factor of um, the, the uh, leadership uh, just trying to do something? Or was it the fact that they had so many targets uh, that they needed to hit? that they risked it all pretty much. Um, was it leadership or just the actual target rich uh, situation? Yeah, let, let me let me clarify something. That was 2014, I would say the first Russian invasion is when they threw the soft out there and they were tritted down. In 2015, all the Western NATO special ops guys started working with the Ukrainian special operations and we built them back up. And they're really, really good. Like, we, they got new equipment. They, they got better training. They got more of them. We kind of filled in, you know, where the casualties were. Um, they started bringing in the partisan battalion. So, you know, they, and when, the, you know, when the second, last year, when they invaded, um, the Ukrainian special ops was in a good spot. You know, I'm telling you right now, and I'm not saying this because I'm a special ops guy, but I think, I know for a fact that they were huge in turning the tide of the war. And I know for a fact, um, when they went into the Antonov airfield area up north, that they were instrumental and critical to turning that whole thing around. Um, and so I know, I mean, they were just, you know, they were dropping aisle 76 is filled with airborne soldiers, like, you know, nobody's business, just all of them out of the sky, 150 dead. I mean, they were, they were, they did phenomenal work, right? You're not, they're not bragging about it. They're not talking about it. It's just, they're, they're too busy to celebrate, I guess. It's, you know, that's not their concern. They, they, they're still in the fight. They're a long way from it being over. And so when you talk about target rich stuff, you know, I mean, a lot of times people see the conventional force doing a lot of fighting and everybody's like, well, where the hell are all the special ops guys? Well, I can assure you they're not bored. But they're not going to run around and talk and say things about what they're doing because it's of its sensitivity. And so people, you know, everybody feels as though they need to know. And the reality is you don't need to know. And, you, should, you know, it's the whole purpose of having a compartmentalized secret operation is so it's secret. And uh, in America, we're horrible. I really love the way the Ukrainians don't report losses. They'll talk about the Russians all day long. If you want, they'll give you any detail you want about the Russians, but they don't talk about their losses. They don't talk about their vulnerabilities. And that's the way you're supposed to function in a war. Our country, the United States and most Westerns, you know, we're free um, press. They, and they're content driven and they're on a 24 hour a day cycle. They're dying to hear anything. And so they're constantly asking the government for 
for information, frankly, that should be confidential. And unfortunately, we have generations of, of government officials that tend to open their mouths um, and say things that they believe are not important, but end up, you know, being able to fuel the intelligence systems. Open source intelligence is the worst nightmare we've got because everyone has a, a cell phone. Every human being's a sensor now. They can record things. They can Snapchat it, Instagram it. And so it is very hard to do anything without people being visible of what you're doing. And so I, my hat's off to the Ukrainians. I'll tell you something that's interesting. So the, the Joint Special Operations Base in Ukraine, when they attacked it, the Russians went right after their military information support building. That's what they tried to destroy first because the Ukrainians are really good at this stuff, man, like really, really good. And so, you know, they know how to do the information warfare piece as good as anybody I've ever seen. And so I, that's a long answer to your question, but I, one, the special ops people are all over the place and they are suffering high casualties. That's, I'm just going to be straight up with you. They, they're, you know, it's not an easy way to make a living. Right. And so, but they are, you know, and they're doing really, really, really great work. Everything they do is meaningful. Does that make sense? Uh, no yeah. doubt. Lose lips, sing shifts, Daryl, right? That's exactly right. Uh, exactly. I, I agree. I agree 100% with what you said about the media, the 24-hour period. You know, I grew up in the, from the, you know, I was in the service in the 80s, and, you know, we were Cold War. You didn't talk about movements. You didn't talk about nothing. Uh, it was the same mantra from years before. And so when you mentioned that, it just, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I heard that loud and clear. Yeah, I think I think it's, um, you know, Colonel Braden, I think what you said is, is very salient in the sense that um, we can talk fundamentally how you would, you know, break up a trench line or how you would, or, or academically, how soft forces can operate. And the mere fact that you're here and you're, and you're letting our folks know that, that Ukrainian soft is engaged, that they're doing great work. I think that that's, that that's awesome for our, our people because you, you're right. There's an insatiable appetite for, for information in the, the American and and broader European uh, uh, area, right? So I think that um, I, I, I get it. Um, we're not trying to push you too far, but uh, I, we do appreciate you being here. Uh, Axel is uh, is the, our next uh, our next folk, our, our next uh, gentleman coming in. Uh, he's he's kind of my pseudo boss in this nonprofit. So so be nice. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> that would not be fair. No, no. I am very glad that you are around with us and impart all that knowledge. And by the way, thank you, Stuart, for, for joining us today. It's, it's sincerely appreciated. And uh, we benefit from uh, the many good guests uh, uh, Jeff has uh, brought us. So that dish with fish is, uh, has become an institution very quickly. So I'm, we're very glad. So, But apart from all that praise, one key thing, you touched upon insertions beforehand. Uh, we all have heard and learned, unfortunately, that the Ukrainians have not yet been provided sufficiently with Western rotor um, yeah, aircraft in that regard. Um, how, how would you describe this? What kind of capabilities uh, could we impart by giving them, say, a few Blackhawks, Chinooks, maybe some Little Birds, 
uh, to support them and some firing support from Apaches so that they can do that better. None of those aircraft will survive. Not a single one. You know, the only thing that's going to survive with active IR with an S-300 or an S-400 is five, fifth generator. That's a joint strike fighter. And so the way, the, the way I mean, you know, without getting into, you know, I'm not an Air Force guy, but I've been involved with enough, you know, um, invasions that they spend a phenomenal amount of energy to reduce the air threat. And so you'll, you, and then, and, you know, going up against S-400s and S-300s, even the U.S. Air Force would lose a lot of their inbound stuff because um, the systems are really good. Um, and so you can arm, you know, I mean, I, look, we, they were doing flights into Mariupol up until the day it fell. They lost a lot of helicopters doing those flights. Um, and so you can just, you got to be smart about it, you know. Um There'll be a moment in time when the small diameter bombs are able to target all the the um, the radar sites the, that run operate the S four hundreds, and then um, once you create a gap in the in the defense, you know the the network, then you can exploit it. But you're not you're not really there yet at this time. I'm I'm a believer more in fires then, you know, I mean, if you have an Apache, it's just shooting a Hellfire missile. You can shoot the same damn thing from the ground. The optics on an Apache are phenomenal. There's a lot of great things you can do with that. But you're still, if you get above, you know, treetop level, that thing's coming to the earth. Um, and so I would, I would use my fire systems. You know, the other thing that's replacing a lot of the stuff now is spatial technology, right? And so the, just the commercial satellite systems are able to give you some of the most amazing detection and early warning with, you know, and quickly. It's not like the old days where the satellites would pass over the same thing twice in a day. No, 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 no. No, some of these systems can punch them out every few hours, some of them less than that. And so I think just, you know, those are really high resolution, good photos. They really help you what's called tipping and queuing. You can put your intelligence assets against those and you can do some really phenomenal targeting. The Russians also are lazy, right? They don't move around, you know, as much. They don't have to because there's not as much counter battery fire. So when this thing kicks off, you're going to see a lot of those folks just smoldering in some field somewhere because they've been lazy. They haven't been constantly displacing and moving the, the radars and the assets because it's painful. It's a lot of work, especially in the cold weather. You know, soldiers, they want to take a break. You know, they want to get warm. And, you know, if you do that, you may not live very long. And so um, that's a long answer to your question. I'm a big fan of giving them F-16s because it's going to take them a while to do it. We're getting rid of them. Might have, uh, that would have been my follow-up. No, you might <laughs> as well give it to them. You know, I was – look, if it was me, I would start among – I'd do the same thing we did in World War II. I would put the Ukrainians on a Lend-Lease program. I'd – Say, hey, look, I'm gonna, you're gonna sell these to you like a bond issue. You can repay us when you recapture all your lands and you reestablish stuff. There, I would do the same exact thing we did for Western Europe, you know, when the Nazis rolled across it. I mean, you know, if money's an issue, then take money off the table. They'll sign an IOU, which is a, you know, a lend-lease bond. They don't care. I mean, as an American taxpayer, anything I can do to to sell my hardware to an ally is a smart thing to do. Um, and I wouldn't do it just for the Ukraine right now. I'd be arming up all of Eastern Europe 
in a big way. Poland's doing it on its own because it's got a really robust economy. Romania, to some degree, you know, um, Romania's always had a little bit, they've always walked a little bit more gingerly um, because they haven't had as, you know, they haven't been invaded as many times as Poland has. I think the Baltic states, you know, they, you know, they're, they would, they would arm up in a minute. If we had some sort of lend lease program, we could do that. You know, our manufacturing would be in trouble because we're not set up to manufacture that at this pace, but you know, it's America, man, we can, you know, Western Europe, we can, we can generate more, you know, we can do this. I mean, hell, we've done it before. It's not rocket science. We did it for COVID. That, that is what I was leading we at. We did it for COVID. It. This is exactly what, exactly. We can do this. We are the West. Yeah. We, we do it all the time. Business this. does it all the time. This is, you know, I'm out in the private sector with business all the time. They do this every day. You need protective masks. The president invokes the, you know, the, um, the, Industri the War Powers Act on the industry. And boom, next thing you know, we got more masks than you can count. They're everywhere. You know, you need rebreathers. Boom, they're out. You know, I mean, th this is, you, you can take the mass, especially in our engineering is phenomenal. And, you know, the West is just really good. And they love challenges and stuff. So you throw a bunch of these chuckleheads in a room and you tell them, hey, make these into this. And give them a week, they're done. You know, and, and they're, they're just, our engineering is really good. And, um, cause, cause people see it as a challenge and, and they get, they get up for it, you know, and they want to do it, especially if they're helping people. So I don't think any of this is insurmountable. I know, you know, the current administration, the Biden administration is trying to mid, you know, they don't want to turn it into a new, they don't, uh, first they didn't want to turn it into World War Three. This is World War Three. This is 1938, 1939, you know, they're in the Sudetenland. I mean, if you have any delusions of grandeur that Putin's just focused on the Ukraine, you are smoking weed. It's not, that's not reality. I mean, these, he's trying to ensure that Russia has, you know, a, a, an out, a longer lifespan than it is. Um, I think he's completely miscalculated. Everything he's doing, but, um, yeah, I, I think that we should give them Hey Stu, I don't know if you're walking around, but I think you're starting to uh to break up. You might be uh losing your signal or it might be me, but uh um I, for all the people out there that are sending direct messages to me, yes, uh Colonel Colonel Brayton and I disagree. <laughs> A gentleman's disagreement on on air. Uh, I'm I'm not as sold as he is on S300s and 400s capability. They are very lethal, uh, but I, I'm, they weren't as lethal as I think what we would had originally talked about. He and I will have beers uh, someday, and we can talk about that. But we're not going to talk about it here. Uh, we we both do agree that uh, F16s are a good thing. Um, uh, by the way, uh, Stu, I don't know if you heard because uh, I think it's he, he just dropped. Oh, I, he might have gotten a call. It sounded as if, if a call was pushed away and then came back. Yeah, but please go on. He, he, I think, I think he was so mad about the S three hundred four hundred comment that he just quit on me, uh, and just uh, and just cycled away. So <laughs> he'll 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 try and cycle back. I'm I'm sure he'll come back in. Let's uh, let's just watch the request to see if he uh, if he cycles. There he is. Uh, hold on, I'll bring him back up. Let's see, and he's Got cycling up. Let's see, he's already there. So you there? Two seconds. Sure. Stu, are you there? Hello? And I'm not. 
we'll see. When it's it's back. a yes and no, but he he will be. I think it, it's uh, take a little while to connect. <laughs> okay. Just re- reading the tea leaves here. All right. Anyway, uh, for the listeners out there, um, that one of the things that uh, that yes, you know, Colonel Braden and I are just around here at. Uh, but we see things fundamentally the same, right? We both believe in F-16s. I don't know if you saw my article on Newsweek about, about the, you know, getting F-16s into, into, into Ukraine or not. But, um, but yeah, he and I both uh, agreed that that's the right, um, it's the right answer. Uh, the other thing is, and, and I see that, um, you know, Colonel Braden's listening in. I don't know if he's familiar, but Major General Sandor, uh, someone both he and I know, he is the Hungarian SOF uh, commander. Uh, and Hungary has actually done a lot of work with the uh, uh, with NSHQ, and I wanted to let him know because I don't know if he's aware yet, but he's actually been nominated and taking a new position. He's actually going to Belgium to be the NMR for Hungary uh, at NATO shape. So wanted to let you know that. Um, are you back with us now, or are you? Not? Yes, I am. I talked to Thomas. Uh, a week ago. The, um, he's being replaced by Attila, who was actually the. Um exchange officer here in Tampa with US SOCOM. So yeah, they're they're doing some shuffling around, which is, you know, not unusual. Yeah. I I, I there's an article I wrote about uh so they're actually doing a, a big um a pretty big reduction in forces at the senior level to be able to keep and move guys up and down or move guys up and, and keep the as you know about European military forces, right? There's this retirement where everyone has to stay so you get way too heavy. Uh, Hungary has decided that they want to actually try and, for lack of a better term, call off some, some of those senior guys so that they can keep the dudes moving. Not necessarily a bad idea. They're going to give them early retirement. I just I think that the a lot of folks in Europe are hesitant to listen to it because it's it's Orban and they're concerned about him. And then the other thing is is uh, the defense minister actually has judge, jury, and executioner, so there's no real board that's selecting them. Well beyond the the realm of our discussion, I just wanted to let you know that. And um, let's see, we will go on to George. George, what's your question? Sorry, I was all thumbs with the buttons here. No, I was going to say because uh, uh, Stuart was talking about uh, production. Well, we mentioned this morning that uh, our artillery shell production went up just in a few months. So uh, why can't we just start producing other stuff? We we can. I think I just read the other day our artillery 155s were doing about 19,000 a month. They've added a new factory facility, I want to say in Arkansas and Indiana or somewhere, and they're going to go up to 90,000 a month. So they are. It takes a while, man. It's not the people and the thing. It's the actual machines, you know, that actually do it. You got to put those big boys together, and they are a beast of machines. And so then you got to haul them all around and stuff. So it takes a while to get those out there, you know. So the good thing about the Ukrainian situation is it has highlighted the global crisis with supply chain. Between it and COVID, it is exposed. You know, we have what's called just-in-time logistics. That is a perfect – that's when the thing is made, and there's very little bit of time between delivery and installation into something. In a peaceful world with no disruptions, it's phenomenal. In a world that's full of chaos with hurricanes, earthquakes, wars, stuff like, you know, pandemics, it don't work. And so you're going to have to, they did it because it reduced the number of warehouses, warehousing, which is expensive, right? 
a lot of times it's not you just store it. You've got to store it in a certain way. It's got, to, you know, certain types of stuff. And then how long is the, you know, is the material there? And I'm not a supply chain expert, but there's a lot of nuances to it. And now what people have realized is they've got to have greater production capacity, resiliency, like more than one. And then two, they've got to have greater stockages and stuff. Could we do it? Yeah, we could. Absolutely. George, did you have a follow up? I saw your hand back up, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Just, 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 just a correction. The, the, uh, we're actually pumping out ninety thousand shells a month now. That's, yeah, that's affirmative. Yeah, that's good. We were pumping out ninety thousand. I think the goal is one fifty. Yeah, we, which so. probably means we probably need two fifty. We can do it. about it. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is probably true because you were, the Ukrainians were targeting shelling 80 a week uh, and that was in slow times but the whole meaning yeah, when, they had less, less, when they had less kit but the precision fires so is changing I, I meet with chiefs of defense I talked to like five of them in six months and they all wanted to talk to me about round rates and all this other stuff and it was all based on you know, God bless them, all Eastern European dudes, and they just want to sling that crap out there because they were trained by the Russians. Nowadays, you know, everything coming out of the tube damn near is precision or could be precision. And so what you're seeing is, you know, every round will count. And that's a big difference, man, when, you know, what you're shooting actually hits what you're aiming at with one round. You know, you see the battery fives and all the old things, you know, we used to do, you know, they don't, you don't do that. You don't have to do that with these new precision weapons, which is really cool. Yeah, I, I um, it's interesting, right? I was doing research for another article that I'm, I'm about ready to push out. And um, in World War II, and, and look, aviation was very important in World War II. I, I'm not trying to dismiss aviation. Uh, we took a lot of casualties, but it was really important in the war. Um, the, with, with the modern, uh, top secret Norden bombsite, right? The Norden bombsite, which was supposed to be the Nats ass of being able to drop bombs. Um, the rate of being able to drop a bomb within a thousand feet of your target was 16%. So we just dropped a shitload of bombs, just, just kind of like you're talking about with artillery. And then you move to desert storm and you see these images, right? From desert storm, from a, from the air where revetments of aircraft, uh, have just one small hole in it, right, where a precision weapon came in and just plunked it. The rest of the earth is unmarred, um, but you're saving thousands and thousands of, of man hours of of production, of logistics, just, just like you're talking about. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and, and I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more on that. It, it, it's um, it, it, it's got to probably be frustrating to talk to the, those chads and say, look, you're you're your your heart's in the right place, but you're asking the wrong question. Right. Um, and, and that's, it's interesting. Hey, Doman, did you have your hand up again? I'm sorry. I missed that. No, I didn't, but I do have a question now that you've turned to a little bit more of a historical perspective, Colonel, um, and maybe Colonel Braden, if, when you, when you think back, you know, what, what kind of, uh, what, what operation would you really have liked to take part, part in, um, any, anything from the, from the annals of history where you think, Hey, with, with the knowledge and the skills I have now, even with the equipment of, of, uh, of that time, whenever, you know, second world war, whenever, whatever other time, um, what would you like to have taken part in yourself? Ah, world war two. I think we'd have killed Hitler and Mussolini early on. And that thing would not have 
had 40 to 60 million people die. I mean, with the tech stuff we have now, we're, so when I started Special Ops in 1987, you know, we couldn't manhunt, you know, we were, I was living in Panama and just trying to find Noriega. I'll never forget my father who's retired colonel telling me, I don't understand why you guys just can't capture Noriega. I said, hey, dad, you were in Vietnam twice. How'd you do capturing Ho Chi Minh? Not very well, so shut up. You know, it's hard. It's difficult. You know, I mean, it's not easy to go find people. But you fast forward, you know, you go to, you know, to Mogadishu in 93. Oh, no, it could be another phone call. Yep. Yes, indeed. I was, just, I was excited to hear the rest of the story. Um, <laughs> I, like, I like what he said about his dad. <laughs> really... All right. So as uh, as Stu cycles away and then cycles back in for uh, for his phone call, what I would I do want to let everyone know is that we've been uh, we're we're at an hour point, and it's kind of what I I promised Stu. I, I won't make him stay longer if he wants to. We we will. But I, as he's, uh, I would like to point out that um, next week, uh, for those who are interested in, oh hey, hold on, I'm, we're gonna see if we can get him back. Just give me give me a second. Um, I saw I saw a thumbs down. So next week we have a an, a, another outstanding guest, and that guest, uh, I think we're gonna have a lot of people listening in. Uh, he's the current Nebraska zero two congressman, Congressman Don Bacon, uh, is currently lined up to join us. Uh, he was a former U.S. Air Force officer, retired as a Brigadier General. Uh, his call sign was Bits, Bits Bacon. He was an electronic warfare officer and also Ramstein Air Base Commander, 55th Wing Commander, which is the wing that is in charge of some of the United States Air Force's most sophisticated national intelligence assets. Um, I see Stu is back as listener, so I'll invite him to speak and see if we can cycle him back up. Um, but uh, yeah, so Bits Bacon is lined up. I talked to his staff uh, just before I got on this phone. He's still planning on being able to be with us today. Uh, that next um, uh, next Tuesday, uh, his wife's name is Angie. For those who want to wish him a happy happy Valentine's Day, uh, they've been married for a very long time. Have a uh, a bevy of children uh, b between them, and uh, they've been they're they're an awesome couple. I think you're truly going to enjoy uh, the time with them, Stu. I see your backup. I wasn't trying to cut you off, but. Um, uh, I think you might have gotten a phone call, and while you were gone, I just wanted to introduce our next guest. So I'll turn it back over to you. No, I, you, you were in Mogadishu. Yeah, I think in Mogadishu, you know, Farad, we couldn't find him. We couldn't hunt him down. But but since then, you know, we've gotten really, really good at, at finding human beings and, and being very accurate about it. And I think that capability alone today would be amazing um, if you put it against people like Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and folks like that. Um, so that's kind of, I think you could end a lot of pain and agony by taking out, you know, key leaders like that and stuff. Um, hopefully, hopefully in the future, we'll be able to target some of these folks early on and, and, uh, save more lives. I don't know if that answers the question. I think, yeah, I think, I think that's actually really telling and, and kind of, um, it, it's, it's somewhat humbling, right? Where your heart is because, uh, there, there's probably a lot of guys out there that would want to uh, take part in in uh, a given war because of the the her uh, heroic nature or being part of it. Um, uh, the fact that your desire was actually to try and mitigate suffering of, of humanity is is uh, is quite impressive, buddy. So I I, uh, I give kudos to you. Um, I also agree that hunting uh, hunting down bad guys is a is a uh, 
is a wonderful capability we have. There's an Iranian that uh, that is no longer with us because uh, he decided to smoke smoke some luckies on a uh, on an Iraqi ramp, uh, which was probably a bad move on on his part. Um, so uh, I agree with that. Um, it's we're at one hour and ten minutes. So Colonel Braden, you tell me when you got to cut off. We got uh, two more questions right now. So if you can stick I can around, do two more, I can do two more questions. Awesome. Okay. Hey, Daryl, go ahead. All right, Colonel. Um, this would be a question on training, uh, per se. Um, I know that you guys train for various environments uh, across, you know, around the world because uh, threats don't come from one source. For the Ukrainians, have they been trained? Have uh, when you guys were training them, did you give <clears throat> them the same type of training in multiple uh, environments? So that they would, you know, kind of understand that not every um, target that they may encounter will be uh, in the same um, locale or type of uh, environment. Did they receive that type of training as well in the depth that you guys would go? So the answer is yes. You got to understand they've been at war since 2014. So we weren't just at some training facility on a training range. I mean... You know, these guys were constantly practicing what they learned. And I would just say perfecting what they've learned. And so they're stone cold killers. Don't kid yourself. They're very good at what they do. Um, then did they, happen, you know, did they happen to come to the, uh, uh, the America's uh, course here in Georgia? I won't answer that. All right, copy that. All right, so, so I got it back. I got, I got, I got the hammer back real quick. Uh, and then for uh, uh, Colonel Brady, for your last question, we're going to go to Michelle. Uh, I think this is a female, so that way we're uh, we're being uh, fair to, to both sexes. Uh, Michelle, go ahead with your question. Thanks. Um, this is probably a really rookie question, um, and I'm only asking it because of what you said about um, you would have got in there early and killed Hitler and Mussolini. So the question. I'm sure you can guess the question. Why haven't we taken Putin out then? It's not as easy as it sounds. If you want me to do it, um, you'd have to have the Ukrainians do it. The Ukrainians have tried to assassinate a lot of the um, Budinov, who's now about to be the Minister of Defense, who was the Chief of Intelligence. Um, good guy. I mean, they've tried to kill him 10 times, you know. I mean, these, you got to remember the Russians put nerve agent on doorknobs in the UK. I mean, that's the level they'll go to to kill people. Um, but for some reason, we tolerate it worldwide. I mean, the Western nations let them get away with that crap. No one's ever called them to carpet on that shit, you know? I mean, we tend to, well, it's just two people, you know. If someone is willing to put nerve agent on a doorknob, I don't know where their red line is, because that's a pretty serious thing. Um, I, I think most of our governments are just moral cowards. They won't do it, you know, because they don't want to be hunted themselves and stuff. And so um, I, I, I don't think the Ukrainians can get to him in Moscow. He's pretty isolated. I mean, you got to remember, he doesn't even... His people don't talk to him. He's kind of, I don't, I mean, honestly, I, I'm not sure he knows a lot about what's actually going on in the war. I don't know how much they give him. I know he's had ill health. 
Um, I know he sits, he keeps his just a physical distance away from human beings. But I don't, you know, I, I think the guy's living like a monk right now. I think he's kind of like Osama bin Laden in a cave somewhere. He is, you know, he's only getting tidbits of information. And, you know, I, you don't live long if you go in and tell him bad news. So I, I don't know if he really understands what the hell's going on. And, you know, at some point in time, you know, the regime will change just like all Russians regime change. There'll be a, some death, you know, it'll be mysterious. They'll come in and announce that he died and some other guys in charge now. And my personal belief is that person will, you know, say, Oh, he was crazy, you know, and he'll try to do anything he can to get the economic embargo lifted. And I just don't see that happening though. I mean, my personal assessment is, is, you know, I think the Russians ought to have to pay reparations to the Ukrainians. I think there has to be um, trials at the Hague. I think they'll be larger than the Nuremberg World Trial, World War II trials, which definitely larger than the the, um, the Balkan trials. You know, for all the heinous stuff that happened there. Um, you have to answer for that. You can't just pretend that didn't happen. Um, and so, I don't think that you know all the politicians want a clean break in this and. I just don't think it's, you know, one, I hope we as a, as a society, a world don't allow it. I mean, you got to stand up and be counted at some point, right? You got to do the hard right thing. Nobody wants war, especially military people. But, you know, we are where we are because this guy was allowed to do what he did. And, and a lot of his people have done a lot of horrible things and, and you got to answer for it. And I hope we have the moral courage to stand and stick through this. In World War II, it was unconditional surrender. We were not wavering, not wavering. The only time we got a little fuzzy was when it was time to invade Okinawa, and we made the decision not to use human beings, just nuke them. You know, we just decided, you know what? Let's just nuke them. We have to have the same resolve for this. When I say we, I mean the whole Western world. Um, if you think we're not in World War III, you're kidding yourself. You don't know anything about history. And so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Thank you very much. Hey, uh, Colonel Brayden, it was awesome to have you. I really, really appreciate it. For my listeners out there, uh, thanks for tuning in to The Dish with Fish. Uh, uh, Colonel retired.